Let me invite you now to stand and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. So we are in Romans chapter 2. And I'll read to you verses 1 through 11. And this is an opportunity that will maybe make some of us uncomfortable. That is to look in the spiritual mirror for a minute and to realize that in particular the judgments we pronounce on other people are quite faulty and that we have overestimated their value up against the perfect and right just judgment of God. So look with me now, Romans chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we come to this text, we pray your spirit would guide us. Make us concerned for the things that you're concerned about. Humble us, we pray, under your mighty hand, that by grace we might understand, know, and live and glorify you in the way that you desire. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to tell you about the first test I took in college, and there I was, you know, in the sort of amphitheater-style seating, big class. I get my test. I start working on my test and uh, finish my test and, you know, kind of think to myself, you know, this college thing is harder than, than it looks. Um, maybe I should have studied a little more. Anyway, I go, go back to class the next time the class meets, and the professor hands the tests back, and I, I flip mine over. 45! 45! What a beginning to college. And, you know, of course, I'm sort of coming unglued because I never have done so poorly on a test ever before. And I think to myself, oh, what does this mean for my future and my life? 45. And then the professor goes up to the chalkboard. Yeah, because this was a while back. Goes up to the chalkboard and he draws a bell-shaped 
curve. And he puts a dotted line down in the middle. And he explains to us that he's going to grade on a curve. And in fact, I don't remember what it was. The most common grade averaged among all the class, that became a C. And now I looked at my 45 differently. And I thought, you know, I'm not doing too bad (laughs) with a 45. And even though our experience might be that professors grade on a curve, we need to know something when it comes to our spirituality. God does not grade on a curve. He does not grade on a curve and our performance before a perfect God. And that's what's so important for us to understand here in the opening chapters of Romans. God has an absolute perfect standard, and we do not meet that standard in any way, shape, or form. This is why he sent Christ for us. We needed a Savior. We needed saving. And truly, we don't want God to grade on a curve deep down because we have this longing deep within our heart for justice for things to be right. And if God winked at sin, he wouldn't be a good and just God. Remember this section of really all of Romans deals with, look back with me to chapter 1, verse 17. We see in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. For that righteousness to be revealed, that means his rightness, his goodness, his holiness his mercy, his perfect just judgment, all of it is portrayed in the gospel message. And so we really don't want a God who isn't a just judge. We, there's something deep within us that longs for that which is evil to be punished and everything that is made wrong, everything that is wrong in this world made right. We long for that. We don't want God to grade on a curve, except when it comes to us, right? And so this is a statement here in Romans chapter 2 about how when human beings judge other human beings, they are proving that they have enough of a moral compass to condemn them. That God is saying, you can't come to me with the excuse that you just didn't know any better because when you exercise critical, judgmental attitude towards another person, you are proving you have enough moral fiber that you are self-condemned. So this passage here in Romans chapter 2 is not a prohibition against any judgment, and you need to hear me on that, that Christians do. There is an ethical standard put forth in the Ten Commandments, developed more and applied in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that establishes for us a morality and an ethics which goes along with salvation. This is not the prohibition 
against any judgment, as if you judge between right and wrong, and now you're in trouble. No, we are not encouraged anywhere to jettison moral judgment. What this passage does is it is condemning those who would judge and the futility of their judgment when they are involved in the same sins that they judge against. Do you follow me? Let me say that another way, just so we're clear. The Bible does not prohibit people from making moral judgments between right and wrong. This is part of how the Spirit leads us in discernment. This is a prohibition against a kind of judgment that we level against others so we feel better about ourselves. So we pull, attempt to pull God down to our level by creating a reference point with other people and we say, look how good I am doing versus those who I just read in the paper about this morning who were carrying on all kinds of sins, whatever those might be, and we look down... Uh, on those who are committing those sins without reference to our own need for a Savior. That's the dynamic that's being condemned here. This kind of criticalness and judgmentalness. And I know that in our particular denomination and in our particular church, I've experienced this. Some people here believe they have the spiritual gift of criticalness. And we sometimes believe we have the spirit. What's your spiritual gift? It's judgmentalness. Well, I've read Romans 12. I've read 1 Corinthians 12. Those are the two gift lists in the New Testament. You will not find a critical spirit to be a spiritual gift. And so what people will typically say is, well, I'm being discerning. I'm being discerning. We overvalue our criticalness. And we overvalue the contribution it makes to God's kingdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is a passage which rightly frames the first point I'm going to make. The futility of our judgment. Who are we? And that's really the question that this passage develops. Who are sinners? Who do we think we are making moral judgments towards another sinner? Who do we really think we are? Do we think, and how absurd would this be, that our righteousness is self-generated and that we don't need a Savior because we are that righteous and that good? And so Paul exposes the futility of our judgment here against others when we practice the very same thing. So let's look at this passage and how this develops. So the first point here is our judgment, this kind of self-righteous judgment is futile. It doesn't contribute to the glory of God and his honor. Look with me in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So there's no excuse for self-righteously expressing judgment towards others. For self-righteously placing ourselves on a pedestal and everyone else below it. Do you ever notice how we are extremely harsh and hard 
on those who struggle with sins we're not tempted by. And we are extremely gracious with those who struggle with the same things we do. And this shows and exposes the futility of that. Now, in verse 1, you see the word therefore, and we want to be good biblical exegetes. So that means we, this, this point is predicated on what goes before. And what went before? Well, in verses 26 through 27, you have the prohibition against homosexuality, that homosexuality is a sin, and that it is a result of being given over to the dishonorable passions mentioned there in verse 26. Then what we see is that God gave them up, verse 28, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then those things are listed for us. So there's many sins that are listed there in verses 29 through 31 that all talk about our own anthropology and our unrighteousness before a holy God. And it culminates in a description of the times then and now in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In that context then, God declares that people do not have an excuse before him because they exercise in their condemnation of others, in their judgmentalness towards others, they are exhibiting enough moral faculty to know the difference between right and wrong. And if they know the difference between right and wrong, then they are condemned. They don't have an excuse. Do you follow me? So in passing, and I'm just reading here in verse 1, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Practice is a key word in this passage, and we see that uh, means to do. So what we have here is we have people condemning others who are involved in the very same sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is not only the bad things that you do that don't stack up to God's perfect standard, but they are also the bad attitudes we have and the good that we leave undone. So when the text says practice the very same things, maybe the sin is somewhat different, but the iteration of it deep within our hearts coming out in our attitude likens it and creates that similarity. We might think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 where Jesus says, not only is uh, murder prohibited, but being angry in our hearts is a kind of murder towards another person. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That's a declaration of God's righteousness, that he is a good and just judge. Verse 3, do you, two questions are asked here. One in verse 3, one in verse 4, both are rhetorical questions. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Showing that when we are critical, judgmental towards another, yet we are still practicing sin, that we will not escape God's judgment except through Christ. It is not by 
moral effort that Christians are saved. It's not by our performance. God does not grade on a curve, therefore he sent Christ because our performance doesn't stack up. So those will not escape the judgment of God. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And this is a rhetorical question that assumes the answer, yes, in the affirmative, you are presuming. In other words, the fact that God allows sinners, those apart from Christ, to breathe the air is part of presuming on his kindness, forbearance, and patience. And the reason why God has extended patiently and allows those who displease him to exist is that he wants the kindness to be experienced and lead sinners to repentance. The purpose of his patience in not immediately wiping out all those who displease him is not to authenticate their self-righteous judgment or the way that they are living, but it is actually an extension of kindness to lead towards repentance. Verse 5, But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is like when you set your you know, maybe you set your retirement savings or, or you move a certain amount of money, you know, $100 every month. You're putting it in the savings account. You're putting that deposit in there. That's what this dynamic is describing in a spiritual sense, that we are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath through this hard and impenitent heart that will not repent in the face of the kindness that God has shown to us and how he has spared us in Christ. And so, some years ago, I met what I would, what I would term, and I'm going to change some of the details behind this so the guilty are protected, but I met the strictest Christian family I had ever met. Strictest Christian family and, and by that, I mean they had certain rules about how they lived and conducted themselves that were not uh, drawn from the Scripture, but were more or less added on to the Scripture. And I was, and I still try to be a respectful person, and so I had the philosophy that God had led them to this. They were Christians. I believe they were mistaken, but they were Christians, and that God led them to these strict uh, convictions. Um, I think it was a weaker brother issue, and so I was forbearing with them and uh, being together with them uh, in friendship. And the problem is, every time I'd get together with them, I'd get judged. I'd be judged for different things, maybe my kids did something, and it was withering to be around people who were so critical on matters that the Scripture was silent about. 
And the thing is, it did not represent what we're told here in verse 4, the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It was not, it's, it's not a good experience to be around people who are critical and judgmental. Yeah, 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 but, but you didn't do this. You didn't say that. You didn't act this way. It seems that we have no shortage of people who would improve upon any manner of the way that we conduct ourselves. And the emphasis here in verse 4 is on the kindness of God, reflecting that kindness. What does that mean? Well, we're made in the image of God. We read that in Genesis 1.27. The image of God is nothing physical because God is spiritual. He doesn't have a body like we do. What it means to image God is to transcribe his character onto the created order as we act in ways he would act. And so to image God is to reflect his character in the created order. And one of the ways we image him is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Is to express kindness knowing that we are people who have received kindness and mercy from God that we do not earn and do not deserve. And to express that kindness to people. What I'm getting at here is we underestimate the effect of kindness. uh, And I'm talking about a Christian kindness centered on the gospel. When we exhibit that kind of forbearance that God has for people like us. And the fact that in Christ he puts up with us. When we show people that kindness... It leads them to repentance. It is a spiritual dynamic that pulls and draws people in. God is drawing people in towards himself by virtue of the Spirit's work in the display of God's kindness to other people. Here's what we do, though, sometimes. We express a criticalness, a pride, that we are not like those other people or we're better than those other people and we express that. And is that what the text tells us leads to repentance? Our criticalness, judgmentalness, and condemnation of others with no regard to our own situation and how we have only received We have not gone out, performed, and been rewarded. We receive, what we receive from God is neither deserved nor earned. It's by his grace. And there's a great call for a heavy dose of humility here. That we would image the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God with others. That we would put the emphasis on that rather than No, I just really need to exercise my spiritual gift of criticalness here and tell you what to do. And the issue is three things contribute to us being uh, judgmental and critical of others. And let me tell you, the the more critical you are of others, people get around you, they don't want to be around you. They don't want to be around you. They want to experience, what is it like to be around you 
and to receive from you, especially if I don't know Christ, someone doesn't know Christ, they're around you, are they experiencing the kindness of God that leads to repentance? Three things contribute to really our pride and our arrogance as we're judging others and looking down on them. Our ego, our education, and our experience. Our ego, our education, and our experience. And what do I mean by that? Well, your experience can authenticate the decisions that you made, and then what you do is you say, everybody should make that decision too. And now I've got moral force behind my opinion. You see how that works? So that's, that's how experience contributes to it. Education contributes to it because we get arrogant in our education. And the more educated we are, well, we just know it all. And so it's got to be this way. We don't question enough the sovereignty and absolute nature of our opinions and our judgments, our self-righteous judgments. And let me tell you one place you can experience this. So I encourage you, sign up for a supper club. I encourage you to do that. Friends, good times, uh, all that happening. It's not the place in a supper club because we have people who have different opinions about different things. And I'll give you an example. I'm a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan because I believe being a Dallas Cowboys fan teaches you how to, how to deal with disappointment in your life. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's people who aren't Dallas Cowboys fans here. Okay, I need you to use your intuition to connect the dots here. When we're talking about masks, when we're talking about politics or whatever, these are not opportunities for friendships to flourish. What I want you to display in your supper club is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Repentance is how you come into the Christian life, but you are not done with repentance, right? Repentance is how you come into the Christian life. You know what I tell our elders and deacons? I tell them, be first repenters. Repentance is not just how you come into the Christian life. It describes the rest of the Christian life as God impacts us and grows us and sanctifies us. So the call here is really to a call to humility in expressing to other people the kindness that their hearts long for that the gospel might advance in their life. That it just, we overestimate the value of our criticisms and our self-righteous judgment. And we need a heavy dose of humility to know, you know, without Christ, none of us stack up. And to have compassion on people and love people to the Savior. I don't believe we're going to argue anybody into the kingdom. But this verse 4 tells me the kindness of God leads to repentance, that experience of God that way. So that shows the futility of our judgment. Let's move now to the second half of this passage, beginning in verse 6, because what you see, it's a contrast. It's the absolute futility of our own self-righteous judgment there in verses 1 through 5 
that attempts to be our salvation, and that's contrasted with the perfect and just, flawless judgment of God. That's in verses 6 through 11. And what we read in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, this is important because what it's telling us is no good deed goes unnoticed by God. This is Matthew 10, 42. A little cup of water given. A cup of cold water. I don't even know when I did this. When I gave this cup of cold water, Matthew 10, 42, that will not go unnoticed by God. He will see that. So he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience, verse 7, in well-doing, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now that sounds like legalism, doesn't it? You do a certain thing and you get rewarded. The reality is, this is in the context of the gospel here, and those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, it's implied there, they're the ones who have turned their life over to Christ. So of course God would give them eternal life. And notice the contrast between verse 7, seeking for glory and honor and immortality to God, and verse 8, what's the other seeking going on? Look at verse 8, self seeking. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what is there? Wrath and fury. The judgment of God is experienced by those who are self-seeking. If your number one priority is you, that is a warning. It's a sign that you haven't grasped the gospel that tells us life isn't about us, that life comes only in Christ. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. When we read the Jew first and also the Greek, that might remind you of some language we've heard before in verse chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul understood that he was in an environment that that church had been made up of different people, different ethnicities and races all coming together in unity in Christ. And just as salvation goes to the Jews first, chronologically speaking, God began with the Jews, his promises to Abraham, and then the gospel unrolled to the rest of the world so is unrolled the judgment of God in this way for those who have failed to be the stewards of God's promises. And then verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Who are the ones who do good? Those who have grasped the gospel. Those who have placed their faith in Christ. And notice it's in the same order, the Jew first and also the Greek. The order of judging, the order of salvation is preserved. And we get this conclusion in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. No partiality with God. There is not one race better than another. There is not one socioeconomic set of people who are better than others. God is the great equalizer because no one stacks up 
apart from Christ to his perfect standard. God shows no partiality is a warning in our interactions with other people, but it is also a wonderful statement of God's justice that we long for. For God shows no partiality. His judgment is flawless, and you and I can stop comparing and start confessing as we come to the Savior in a newness and freshness, remembering our salvation is wholly dependent on Him, not our performance. At UC Berkeley, that shows you how inclusive I am. Um, That was a joke. Don't take it personally. At UC Berkeley, they have several Nobel laureates, and they have a tradition there at the school. I was reading an article about this, that when a professor gets the Nobel Prize, wins the Nobel Prize, and you can kind of imagine, I mean, this is the height, lifetime achievement academically to win the Nobel Prize. When they win the Nobel Prize, they get a parking space for life. They get this parking space. In the parking space, it says, it's stenciled letters. It says, NL reserved, really big. Nobel laureate reserved. And they put the parking space right next to the building for the department where they have been a professor. So, you know, it's over by the economics building or chemistry building. Anyway, the professors really like this. First, it saves them 1500 bucks, but then they're right, they don't have to walk as far uh, because they get this parking space. But, you know, what's um, interesting about this is even though that lifetime achievement, they won the Nobel Prize, they get the free parking space. For some reason, you have to renew it every year. It's not like they took the Nobel Prize away from you. But regardless, you have to go to the parking office and you got to renew that permit or what happens. And a couple of professors in the article I read talked about this. They, they get a ticket. They get a ticket. I'm a Nobel laureate. Yeah, I'm writing you a ticket because you don't have the right permit. And that's their reminder to go in and to renew that permit. And I want to tell you, there's a dynamic that happens to us spiritually. The further chronologically we get away from that time when we came to know Christ, if you weren't raised in a Christian family, something happens. The further we get chronologically away from that moment, we tend to forget what spiritual dire straits we were in. And we become very ungracious towards those who don't know Christ. And we don't show them the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And the call for us this morning is to renew your permit, so to speak, your spiritual permit. That's what this table is about. This table is about in your face reminding you and I that we are sinners saved by grace alone. And we may for a moment get all high and mighty about other people and be critical of them and judgmental of them. But this passage reminds us, look in the mirror. What they practice may be a little different, but the same dynamic of sin 
is at work in your life because we are all fallen, all sinners. Look over at chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how thankful we are that God doesn't show partiality, but justifies us through the work of his son. And so my invitation to you this morning is renew your permit. This do in remembrance of me. Why do we need that? Because we forget. We suffer from a kind of pride that gives us spiritual amnesia in just how lost we were and just how much we need a savior. The greatness of the gospel annihilates our pride, brings us to repentance, enables us better to relate to other people, not in this critical, judgmental, here's what you did wrong kind of mode, but in that mode of I am a fellow sinner in desperate need of God's mercy. So this passage shows us the futility of that judgment in the flawless judgment of God that we all might together be humbled and renewed in our sense of just how much we need Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would remind us today and this week of just what an awesome Savior you are, that we together as your people are called to image and to reflect your kindness to other people. Lord, where we have really gotten on our self-righteous high horse, forgive us. Where we have hurt relationships because we've let our ego, our education, and our experience create laws and rules which you do not have in your word. Forgive us. And may we be a people who walk humbly with our God, thankful for the mercy we did not earn and do not deserve what you have shown us. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have been merciful to us, and we pray that mercy would continue and be experienced new every morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.